Um, go ahead and turn your Bible to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you're flipping through, you're going to want to go just before the wisdom literature, Job, Psalm, and, Psalms, and Proverbs. It's going to be just before that, Nehemiah chapter 8. And as you're flipping there, I just want to give us a quick reminder as to where we are. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah 8. Uh, so the last few Sundays, Pastor Clay kind of set us up for this study of ecclesiology, right? This idea of what is the church? And then how, how does that, how do we work that out in our church? <laughs> and, and so when we started, he kind of gave us this like definition that very first week. And then uh, a few weeks ago, if you were here, we got to talk about prayer, the importance of it, the meaning of it. And then we kind of took some time and prayed together as a church. And so tonight... Uh, we're going to be asking a, a question that we should come to every single week. And, and the question that we're going to try to answer tonight together is, what is preaching? What is preaching? So does the Bible actually tell us what preaching is, or is it a tradition that the church has adopted over time? Because if, if you're in the public sphere, especially if you're going to be talking about your faith, you'll probably come up against this kind of criticism, this friction of, well, your Sundays don't look anything like what the Bible says. And so what I'd rather do, other, rather than us just try to argue back, we can actually point to Scripture and, and find our answer. So... If you were asked this, if you were told maybe, well, you know, that, that's something from tradition. It's great that you have your sermon, but me, you know, my relationship with God is just more private. How would you respond? Would you be able to give a defense of, well, no, like the church matters. Coming together for the preaching of the word, it matters. How would you respond? Could you respond? Well, the good news is that, that after tonight, I pray not just because of my words, but because of the words that God inspired in Nehemiah, we can answer yes to that. We have confidence that we have the answer. So, the, the title of the sermon for tonight is, um, it, it's kind of like a Puritan title, that's why I didn't lead with it, and I told Jeff just to say what is preaching this morning, so if you're taking notes, I'm sorry, uh, but the title of the sermon is The Cutting and Comforting Power of God's Word. The centrality of preaching for God's people. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, and uh, I'm, I'm going to argue that every word in there does come out of our, our text for tonight. But So I'll say it one more time if you are trying to take notes. Uh, the cutting and comforting power of God's word. The centrality of preaching for God's people from Nehemiah 8. And I know that Nehemiah is one of those books that we're like, that's the dude who did something. But we don't really know who Nehemiah is or like what the context is. So we are going to spend a couple minutes. And I, I just want to kind of paint the picture for you of where we're at in, in the history of Scripture. So that you can kind of have a right understanding as we head into our passage. So roughly the last 150 years for Israel has kind of been a dumpster fire. So of the last six kings that they've had. So this is after the kingdom was split in two, so we're looking mainly at Judah. But the last six kings that they had, other than Josiah, were awful. They, they hated God, they tended to worship other gods, they tended to pretty much emphatically break the commands that they actually were raised up to lead the people in. And God tells us elsewhere that the kings are emblematic of the people. So we have no reason to believe that, that the people were any better. And then, as if things couldn't get much worse, prophets start to come and they start to warn the people. 
Uh, we have weeping prophets like Jeremiah, but we also have prophets like Amos who warn the people that judgment is coming for their sin and for their rebellion from God. But eventually, those warnings stop and the punishment arrives. It arrives in the form of Babylon, which was the world superpower at the time. Babylon comes in and is tired of their off and on rebellion that they're dealing with with Judah. And they raise the city to the ground, almost. The, the wall, the symbol of power and of strength, is literally leveled. There's not one stone on top of another. And then the temple, which is their place where they met with God. If you were here this morning and you got to hear Pastor Jeff talk about the tabernacle. And then the temple where God dwelt with his people. This is burned to the ground. So remember, they don't have synagogues or churches or anything else like this at this time. The way that they would worship God together corporately is they would all, the whole country, would come to Jerusalem and they would worship God together in specific days that were ordained in the law. So what does it mean? If the temple is ripped away from them, it means that God is taken from them and that he no longer dwells with them. And they don't even get to sit in the ashes of the temple, but per Babylon and kind of the cultural norm of the time, prisoners of war were not allowed to stay in their home country. To reduce the risk of rebellion, they would be deported to other countries. So now, not only are they no longer in God's place, but they're pretty much no longer God's people. And they kind of enter this time of hopelessness. Something that we see, actually see in Psalm 137. The psalmist says, By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us of songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They couldn't. Those were worship songs to be sung in the temple. Then after roughly 50 years of exile and slavery, Persia comes in and sweeps Babylon away and now takes over as the world's superpower. And the Jewish people are released in three waves to return home. Nehemiah leading the third wave back. And at this point, the temple had been rebuilt and parts of Jewish culture were starting to be found again. In fact, one of the most significant things is we actually see in Ezra that the law is recovered. They find the law that had been lost for decades, if not close to 100 years. And then Nehemiah leads the people in the rebuilding of, of their, their strength as a people in the signature of the wall being rebuilt in 1 through 6. And that's going to bring us up to our text today when we get to Nehemiah 7, or Nehemiah 8, excuse me. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And we're kind of going to pick up where that context has left us. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So the priest, so Ezra the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Mesiah, on his right hand, Padaiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam, on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hadiah, Mesiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. We'll stop there for now. All right, so, so the, this freshly restored people of Jerusalem have come together, so it kind of says that they, they rebuilt the wall, they settled back in their towns, and then they've come back together for what we can kind of call the inaugural worship service of the second temple. And the law, which had been lost to the people for, for years and years, was now being read again publicly, maybe for the first time. And as it's being read, the people are being taught the implications of what Ezra reads. And finally, we see in verse 8 that the people are clearly hearing and understanding the message being delivered to them. Now you might be thinking, this is, this is great, but this is, this is like history, so, so what is the impact for us today, right? Like, how, how do we translate that over? Like, should it look exactly the same? Do we have to get all the Christians of the world together at one big church? And does, do we have to get Jeff on kind of like a little like scaffolding and get him to read up there? Is that, well, no. But, but I think what we get here, in fact, is a shape of the church to come. So, so is, is it a perfect copy? No, but it's a shape. And I think what this is, is we see God kind of setting up how he always will have his people worship in, in, a, in a form. And so I'm going to go ahead and argue tonight essentially that you can look to the New Testament and see the church. And that's something we'll kind of hit on later tonight. But you can even look to the Old Testament and see the preaching of the word being elevated in the church, in God's people. So what we're going to do tonight is we're, rather than me have like points we're actually going to walk through the passage and we're going to look at some principles for preaching. And we're going to start here in verse 1. God's people gathered as one body. In verse 1. So we see something that might be kind of easy to skip over. Uh, so all the people who settled back in their towns, they rebuilt the wall, they returned to Jerusalem as one man in the ESV. But essentially the, the point is they gathered together as one people, one body. And again, this isn't laying down a command for us that all Christians have to be together, but it's giving us a shape, again, of the church. Think about it. An entire country gathered together, left their newly returned to homes, their refurbished businesses, and they all came together for one purpose, and that was to worship God rightly. And if they can get an entire country into a worship service... <laughs> I'm going to make a scandalous claim, we can too. 
See, this is probably a, a, a bit friction-oriented in some of our churches today, but I think that the shape here is that multi-service, multi-site models are not necessarily biblical, whereas they are aiming to be more practical. But the principle being laid out here is this. The service, primarily the preaching of the law, is a single event of the gathered people that is never to be repeated again. So will there be more gatherings? Yes. But there will never be a time where Ezra stands up with all these exact people in this exact time and reads this exact thing the same way again. And in the same way, this Sunday morning that we had, where, where Jeff preached from John 1.14, he might preach from that passage again, and it might be to roughly the same congregation, but that event is never to be repeated. I have an example of this, is I had the opportunity to go to T4G, it's a pastor's conference in 2018. And in it, Ligon Duncan gave one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. It was a sweeping biblical theology, and he took the take and eat from Satan to the take and eat of Jesus at the Last Supper, and it was, I mean, it was wonderful. And there were 12,000 people at this conference and at least half of them are weeping and praying at the end of it and it was a unique experience. Cut to a couple months later and we're at the beach with Rachel, my wife's family and uh, we, we were gone on a Sunday and we couldn't really find a church so we decided we would listen to a sermon together uh, and, and so I, I said, hey, this sermon, I, you have never heard a sermon like this before, can we listen to it? And her dad was like, sure. So we get it up and it goes and the hour goes by and I was like, that kind of hit different. <laughs> and, and it was the same words. It was literally the same sermon I heard. It had been recorded, but it wasn't the same. And, and again, this isn't a, a specific command, but the shape, the principle is still there. This is something never to be repeated again. And so when we forsake the gathering of the saints, we actually miss out on something, a gift that God has given his people. Something that we see in Hebrews 10. That we should not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. How? As one body. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so virtual sermons, or virtual churches, listening to the sermons afterwards instead of being part of the church, or even listening to other preachers that are really well known, those are good resources. Praise God that we are in a Bible-saturated time in, in the world. But they're not a replacement. Israel was not content on sending maybe like the father to go and hear the sermon from Ezra and bring it back to the family. The people gathered as one body. This is an inescapable reality that we are a united people as a church. That's, gonna, that's our first one in Nehemiah 8. So now we're going to go to Nehemiah 8 verse 3. And we're going to look at how God's people were attentive and this is also something really easy to skip over, right? Like the people were attentive and we're like, they paid attention, right? <laughs> and this is not self-serving, hear me out. <laughs> um, the people had gathered and they were expectant to hear something. They expected to hear from God. They hadn't come passively or were looking for every other thing to keep them awake in the hot sun. They stood from morning till midday. So probably from like 6 a.m. to like noon. They're reading. And they were expecting to hear from God. They weren't just trying to bide their time until it was over. 
See, I think this is one of the areas where consumerism has more subtly invaded the church. You are not a, participant, a passive participant in the sermon. You, you do not come to receive something simply. You are to be an active member of that. See, it, it's not simply about the man up front or even the words that he's saying, but the fact that, that, that we are engaging in hearing God's word being elevated. So if we are barely attentive to a sermon, whether, whether it's because of our phones or we're getting drinks or we're constantly going and doing whatever it is, we're actually failing to be kind of the, the principle that we see here, attentive and expectant to hear from God. We are failing at our God-given responsibility to hear the word preached. We sit in very comfortable chairs, no longer in a cafeteria, thinking about lunch. Or how we forgot something at the grocery store on Saturday, and we wonder why the sermon doesn't impact our hearts the way we feel like it ought to. Because you're not listening to God's word. We are not Church, I encourage you, please don't let the world's concerns deafen you to God's preached word. I think this is the principle that we get out of verse 3. And in verse 5, if we jump down a little bit further, we see that Ezra opened the book. Nehemiah 8, 5. Ezra opened the book. So, so we pick back up with our passage, uh, a couple more verses down, and we see the content of what's being preached. Right, So Ezra came up before the people, he climbed up on the scaffolding, and did he open his Twitter? No. Did he open his news app? No. Did he bring his favorite Christian book? He didn't. He opened God's word. And that's what he read. And when Ezra stood up and began to speak, he didn't come with eloquent words. He didn't give a fiery sermon about reclaiming the culture from the pagans who still lived in Israel. He stood up and he gave them what they needed most, God's word. See, Ezra knew that they didn't need a cultural revolution primarily or, or something worldly to change them. What they needed was God's word. Now, did change come from that? Yes. In fact, what we actually are going to see here and through this and through Malachi is kind of the rebirth of Judaism. But that was the effect. That, that wasn't what he came up to do. He came up to give them God. This is why faithful preaching must begin and end with God's word. And this is not to, to tear down other people, but if you look at, at the at the main of the evangelical church today many come with good intentions teaching something other than God's word because what they want to do is they want to say Christian this is how you have to live in this world is this world lost is it broken yes and so here's here's these tips but look at what Ezra didn't do he didn't say here's five steps to being a real Jew here's eight steps to parent your kids now that we're back from the exile he stood up and he gave them God's word. That is what changed their hearts, church. Our greatest need is not to hear from our preacher, but is to hear from the God he is preaching. 
And this kind of marries with our last observation. So just as we saw in our time with Titus, there's a responsibility on the preacher to deliver God's word accurately. And there is a responsibility on the congregation as to who they will allow to be their pastors. Again, you are not passive in this event of preaching. You have a responsibility as well. And so, if you would be a preacher, hear Paul's solemn command. Preach the word. And a hearer of the congregation, discern faithful preaching and listen well, lest you be deceived by false teachers and go on from bad to worse with them. That's the warning of Titus. And I know that we're moving quickly here, but I want to make sure that we have time to look at these observations because I think when we get to the end of it, again, we're going to see the shape of preaching and of the church that we have today. And I hope that you will leave encouraged in that. So as we move on, I do want to look at just at verse 6 here where we see that God's people worshipped. God's people worshipped. Have you ever considered the reading and the preaching of God's word to be worship? Because verse 6 here does. The Israelites did. Ezra did. Joe does a great job. We get to worship through song. But that's not the end of our worship. We don't worship and then Jeff comes up. And then let's get him down so Joe can come up and help us worship again. It's all worship. And they aren't reading a banger like Romans 8. In fact, from the context, they're reading Leviticus. Right? Have you ever read Leviticus 6 in the morning and you're like, thank you, God, for the law of shellfish. (laughs) But they are. That's what they're praising God about. We, We see later on in Nehemiah, they're reading Leviticus. So maybe not something that we would associate with worshiping, but they did. And it wasn't just... Like it wasn't just a high five or just a, just a nod. They said amen, amen, and they bowed down to the ground and they worshiped God. Why? Because they knew who they were hearing from. They knew that they were hearing from God himself after a famine of, of probably over a hundred years of not faithfully hearing from God. Someone finally stood up and gave them what they knew their souls needed. A drop of water in a desert is what they're getting. That's why they're worshiping. And after decades of idolatry and exile, they were finally getting God again. And that should sting us, church. We who are blessed with a near limitless supply of God's word and biblical resources have grown cold to it. Let us repent of that. Me first. How easy it is to just get so familiar with God's word that we forget it's God's word. Let's reclaim this principle of verse 6. Their praise of amen, amen there, meaning let it be true. And in fact, this amen, amen, if you actually look in the original languages, Jesus is truly, truly, I say to you, is amen, amen. This moment of worship was one of repentance and a desire for their lives. Let it be true in our lives as they heard Ezra read God's word. 
Let that be what we pray and let that be how we worship week after week when a faithful man steps in this pulpit and preaches God's word. The principle for here to grasp is that this isn't just a monologue by the man standing up in the pulpit. It's not a transfer of information. It is worship. In uh, the book Expository Exaltation, John Piper says this, The aim of preaching, or expository exaltation, is to become an instrument in the hands of God so that by seeing and savoring and showing the glories of Scripture, the church might be supernaturally awakened to see and to savor and to show the same. That is, that they might worship So preaching is a form of corporate worship where we come together as one body expecting to hear from God and getting it. And in it we lift up God's word as the true authority in our lives knowing that he has revealed himself to us. But even more than than reading and worshiping, a sermon is explained. That's what we see in verses seven and eight. God's word is explained and understood. So, hopefully, like we're doing right now, a sermon goes beyond simply reading a text. Though that's necessary. You have to have the text. But it goes beyond that, explaining it for the purpose that it is clearly understood. So we see in verse 8. Here we see the Levites, which were essentially a, 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 a family that were the keepers of the law in Israel. They filter through this congregation and they make sure that all the people understand what Ezra is preaching. This is why a faithful preacher will spend hours dedicated to pouring over a sermon preparation. And church, it's why we want it. There there are churches out there that wonder, what does the pastor do all day? (laughs) I remember I was... Uh, at, our, at our former church, we were portable, and so we would work at Panera Bread. And uh, one day, a woman sat next to us, and she saw our Bibles, and she struck up a conversation. And uh, so she was like, so, so you write your speech? And, and he was like, well, sort of. <laughs> and, so, and then she's like, so what do you do with the rest of your week? Because it was Monday, and, and we were doing our outlines, and like, she thought we were done. <laughs> and, and we were like, no, no, that's not, that's not how it works. Church, you don't want that. Because the more time a a faithful man pours over this passage, the more faithful and the more clear and the more understood you are going to get of God's word. Because he must first clearly understand the passage and be changed by it before he can give it to you. This is why we call it expository preaching. It is a drawing out and a delivering of what God is saying to us. And so for men who would be preachers, H.B. Charles gives us this warning. The desire to preach without a burden to prepare is really a desire to perform. Now, if you're not a would-be preacher, please don't tune me out. I promise this is for you too. What grace it is that we are given God's word to tell us what our pastors should look like. You don't have to go, well, oh, I haven't been to seminary. 
So I can't tell someone who can be a pastor who can't. Yes, you can, because God has given us a model for them. Even all the way back in Nehemiah 8. Do not settle for preaching that does not declare God's word. Here, that is for you. Now that does not mean that we have a license to just leave a church because we don't like how the pastor preaches. So please don't leave after tonight. That's what I'm saying. But what it does mean is that a church whose pastor does not faithfully and clearly communicate God's word might not be a church at all. And so with all this, I hope that you're able to see how our worship services today can at least be traced in, in, in the small shape to even the Old Testament understandings of how God's word should be preached and declared. And I told you, I promised I would get back to the title of my sermon, and so we're going to do that now. And we're going to look at those two specific powers that God's word has. And I I think we see them in 9 through 12, and so we're going to read that together. Nehemiah 8, verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For, because... All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, probably Ezra, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when the people first heard the law, they were devastated. You know why? Because they heard about who God really was. Some of them for the first time in their lives. They heard about who he, what he had done, who he was. They heard about how they were called a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19. A blessing to the nations of the earth. This covenant, this perfect union that, that their fathers made with the Lord. And then they looked how they had squandered all of it. And they looked at the chasm between them and God and how could he ever dwell in this temple again? And they sat down and they wept. They were confronted with the holiness of God and the unholiness of their their nation, themselves. And they probably asked Ezra the same thing that Peter heard in Acts 2.37. Peter heard this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? These people were weeping because they saw their sin for the first time. They were broken because they knew a horrible truth that they had rebelled and forsaken God and they had no way to be reconciled to him. It reminds me of Jonathan Edwards and how people would beg him to stop his sermon 
sinners in the hands of an angry God and tell them how they could be saved. It's the same cutting conviction that you felt when you first saw your need for a savior, whether you were four or 40. In church, it's the same conviction we should feel now when we see our sin. But it doesn't stop there. If we read on just a little bit more, we know that the people were told to stop weeping and to rejoice, and we can be told to stop weeping and rejoice. Why? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And I want you to catch something in your Bible. If you look at that sentence, you see how the Lord is, is written? It's in all capitals. That's God's name. It's a, it's a symbol of his, his nearness to them. And, and if, if we're not going to do it, but if you look a little bit on, you actually see what holy day they're talking about. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This was the one day of the year that the one man, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. If, if you were here this morning, we talked a little bit about it. Like the, the most sacred part of the temple, the one place where God's essence was supposed to dwell with the people. And he would make a sacrifice for the people. Trusting that God would not punish the people for their sins, but that he would accept a substitute and give them grace. They didn't go away rejoicing because they were told that they could have their best life, because they were just told, hey, we're back home. They went away rejoicing because they were given the promise that their sins could be covered. Well, they trusted in God to, to, to blame this, to punish this spotless animal. Church, what do we have? We have a sacrifice for sins once for all, Christ Jesus, the risen Lord. And yet, we are willing to forsake the preaching of this gospel Church, we ought to go into a sermon and feel the cutting power of the word. It ought to rend our hearts. But church, do, 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 do you see how much greater the comforting power is? This word preached will rip the stone from your heart and it will cut and it will cause you to weep and to ask, what shall we do? But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so church, feel the wounds of your sin, but feel how sweet it is to have those wounds bound up by the gospel of Christ. Church, this is why we ought to be even more committed to the sermon than those in Nehemiah 8. Because Hebrews 1 reminds us of this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have a final authoritative word from God, and it's Christ. And what is the word Christ tells us? In Luke 4, he shows us how he is the promised Messiah of Isaiah. And in Luke 24, he shows us how every single page of Scripture points to him. 
And so we're in a worship service and we are hearing God's word preached from Genesis to Revelation. We're hearing someone point us to Christ. And so we are cut and we are comforted and we worship the true God who has revealed himself to us and has saved us. What grace is that? Now, we're we're not going to read on, but the rest of Nehemiah is chiefly concerned with how the Israelites responded to this worship service. And how they, they confessed their sin, they turned from it, they repented of it, and they lived their lives in faith. This newfound faith. Let that be true of us, church. Let us see the same thing that Israel saw in Exodus. I am the Lord your God and I have saved you from slavery. Now come and follow me. So church, week after week as we hear our sermons, let's take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of Nehemiah 8. And thank you that that grace is permeated through every letter of Scripture. Lord, forgive us of our forsaking of the goodness of the gospel for for thoughts of lunch or or of self-help. And Lord, give us us you. Raise up men in, in every church who would preach clearly your word. And make us attentive, make us expectant to hear from you. Knowing that we will be cut. But oh Lord, how much more we will be comforted. And how one day this comfort will have just been a foretaste of the true comfort to come. So Lord, I pray that we look ahead every Sunday to the promised rest in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.